0: Hello, it's Mick Sullivan from The Past and the Curious, and I have great news to share with you. I'm going to be, once again, at WBUR's podcast play date in Boston, Massachusetts. It's going to be, I'm going to go on Saturday, April 20th. That's 2024. I'm going to go on at noon. I had so much fun last year that I cannot wait to be back in Boston and be at the City Stage. That was a great place to play. and Everybody who came out, we had so much fun. And I am thrilled and I hope to see so many faces there. So if you're in the area, you're in Boston or you're near Boston, or you like to travel to historic destinations during the springtime because that's an awesome thing to do, well, Saturday, April 20th at noon, I will be there. You can find more information on thepastandthecurious.com, but also WBUR. Like, that's awesome. I hope to see you there.
1: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. This is episode 81, and it's about some very tall things. The stories are about obelisks, which you're going to learn about. So if you don't know what they are, that's okay. I hope summer has been going well for you. Uh, It's been great here, it's been really busy. Um, it's my first summer as a parent with uh, summer camp like things to do, and that's really hectic. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you parents could uh, offer advice or just, you know, agree with the feelings that I have, because it can be stressful, but it's fun. We had a great time, had a great year, uh, and looking forward to more, looking forward to school starting too. It's all going to be great, you know? So I hope you're enjoying yourselves. I hope you enjoy this show. Special shout out, there's a story in here with uh, some big Australian ties. I know that there's a lot of listeners in Australia. So, hello to you. And if you hadn't heard of Thornton's Scent Bottle, well, prepare yourselves. Luckily, you don't have to smell it. Do you know what an obelisk is? You've probably seen one, either at a historic site A cemetery or in picture books or online or you may have been to egypt italy greece london new york washington or even sydney australia all of which are places that have pretty famous obelisks of course some of those obelisks are older than others and some of those obelisks have more odors than others more about that in a minute but if the word obelisk isn't banging any bells in your brain Let me paint you a word picture. They're tall, they're thin, and they've got a square base and four sides that taper towards the top. And that top ends in a pointy pyramid shape high in the sky. Still not sure? The Washington Monument, which you might have seen, is the tallest obelisk in the world, but it sure ain't the oldest. That honor would have to go to a structure in ancient Egypt where the obelisk originated. To ancient Egyptians, obelisks were important and powerful. The towering, pointy pillars were typically put in pairs at the entrances to religious temples. There's no telling how many obelisks there were in Egypt at the high point of the Egyptians building these high pointy things. But today, there are 28 surviving originals in the world. But get this, only six are still in Egypt. The others are spread around the globe, which is understandably upsetting for Egyptians today. Original obelisks were built in honor of Ra, the sun god of an ancient religion, which is pretty cool because thanks to the sun and an obelisk, one clever, observant guy made one of the most important leaps in human understanding. Eratosthenes lived over 2,000 years ago. He was a very smart man and actually served as the chief librarian at the famous, though not flame resistant, Library of Alexandria. As a very smart man, he, like pretty much everyone else around him, knew that the world was round. Some people today, maybe they wanna feel smarter than people of the past, I don't know, but they keep saying that a long time ago, people thought the world was flat, which is just one of those things that gets repeated without many people even investigating the truth. But here's the thing, People long ago knew the Earth was round. It was clear even then. Anyone could look up and see that the Earth cast a curved shadow on the moon, that sails on ships heading to sea disappeared below the horizon, and stars were in a different position at different times of the year. It goes on and on. Of course, there are some people today who seem to still believe the Earth is flat, which is definitely a hot take, or more like a not take, really. Unlike these people, Eratosthenes actually, truly, for realsies, did his own research. I do my own research! Right. Got it. Anyway, he used this research to solve one of his most pressing questions. How big is this round earth of ours? He knew that in the city of Cyrene, on summer solstice, tall structures did not cast any shadows whatsoever. On that day, and that day alone, the sun was in the highest point in the sky, and this town of Cyrene, which we now know today as Aswan, was in the perfect position. With the sun directly overhead, townsfolk there could look straight down into a well and see the water at the bottom, something shadows made impossible any other day of the year. And an obelisk in the town, reaching high into the sky, made no shadow at all on the ground below for the few precious moments that it was directly underneath the sun. But Eratosthenes also knew that at this exact time in another city, Alexandria, an obelisk did make a shadow, and he reasoned that if he knew the angle of that shadow in Alexandria and the precise distance from Cyrene to Alexandria, he could calculate the size of the earth. What he didn't know was how far apart these two places were. So as the story goes, he hired a dude to walk from town to town, and this dude had to count and carefully remember every step he took. This steady stride would determine the distance, which turned out to be 5,000 stadia, an ancient Greek measurement of distance. This 5,000 stadia is the equivalent of 200 miles, and it gave Eratosthenes the information he needed to proclaim that he knew the size of the Earth. Was he right? Yeah, he was pretty darn close, and it was for that reason that he is called the father of geography. But another reason for that could be because he seems to be the first person to actually use the word geography, so that would do it too. Over the centuries following ancient Egypt's golden age, many of these Egyptian obelisks wound up in other countries. The Romans liked them, so they took a bunch. So did Napoleon. And then in the 1880s, an Egyptian leader who cared little for Egyptian history actually just gave a few of them away. One of his gifts that wasn't really his to give is in Hyde Park in London, and another is in Central Park in New York City. Once upon a time, these two were a pair, and they were often called Cleopatra's Needles, both in honor of the famous Egyptian ruler and the fact that they are both very, well, needly-looking. Cleopatra's Needles, however, were built long before Cleopatra was even born. Thousands and thousands of years before, in fact. So they are remarkably old. Older than any other man-made structure around them by a long shot but they are also thousands of miles from their original home. Now, if you are thinking that hard-to-move obelisks, which are thousands of years old, culturally valuable, religiously important, and originally from Egypt, still belong in Egypt, well, you're not alone. But for the time being, these cultural treasures are spread out over multiple continents. There is one obelisk, unlike all the others, that you can find in Sydney, Australia. It was not taken from Egypt, but rather created right there in Australia, for a very particular purpose. In the 1850s, like many other big cities, Sydney, Australia, was confronting a problem. Listen, it's getting gross around here. There's a lot of people around these days, and there's just going to be more. A lot of people. And that means one thing. Yeah, a lot of pants. That's right. Wait, did you say a lot of pants? Yeah, people need pants. What is wrong with you? Sure, yeah, people need pants, but that's not a problem. In fact, it's an opportunity for someone to sell pants, if anything. And, And why are we talking this much about pants? All of these people are creating a very big problem. A very smelly problem, I'd say. Oh, poop. You're talking about poop, aren't you? Well, yes, and everything that goes with it. Rubbish and slop in general, but sure, if you must single out poop, then so be it. Yeah, so be poop. Yeah. So be poop. The city was getting gross. Most big cities were. This was around the time that many of these big cities started creating new parks for citizens. Parks were an easy way for people to be around nature and greenery and enjoy some clean air, which was hard to come by in crowded metropolitan places. Sydney proudly gave its citizens Hyde Park, not to be confused with Hyde Park in London. Immediately, it became a place for fun, games, and frolicking in the fresh, clean air. But Sydney was also hard at work on another major development, sewers. How else are you gonna get rid of all that sewage? The city couldn't let it sit around or expect people to deal with it on their own anymore. Something had to be done to rid the town of stink. So tunnels beneath the cities were installed to get rid of all of the gross stuff that comes from homes and businesses, street corners and schools. And just like your full trash can in the summer sun, or a broken toilet that you found out was broken just a little too late, all of the rubbish filling these sewers got stinky after a while. But the stinky gases created in the sewers still had a way of finding their way up and out on their own, eventually filling those streets with terrible odors, the odors the city wanted to avoid in the first place. With sewage finally out of sight, the city leaders had to come up with a plan for getting rid of the stinky gases that still lingered. I've got it. What? New pants? What is it with you and pants? I love pants. Clearly. But no, I have a solution to our stinky sewers. How do you think we can move air up and out of our sewers? And don't say pants. But. Don't say pants. Well, okay, but uh, I don't know what. Um, a vent pipe? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Wow. But where are you going to put a vent pipe? Well, that's the best part. We're going to hide it in plain sight and make it beautiful. It was in 1857 when Lord Mayor George Thornton officially dedicated a beautiful new structure in Hyde Park. This new structure, soaring to a height of 22 meters, or over 72 feet, immediately became a focal point in the landscape. If Australia had no original Egyptian obelisk, the city of Sydney would make its own. Nearly identical in every way to the Cleopatra's Needle in London, this Australian obelisk delighted the city's residents and hearts swelled with pride on the joyous day it was dedicated with an engraved plaque stating that it was lovingly installed because of the efforts of Mayor Thornton. From that moment on, it loomed over the heads of Sydney's residents and seemed to tickle the clouds as it scraped the skies above. But before long, park-goers noticed something else getting tickled nearby. Their noses. These noses noticed a noxious odor surrounding the newly installed needle. Some days the park smelled worse than others, but some days the air was downright putrid. If fresh air was the goal, something was amiss. Soon enough, it was clear. People learned there was more than meets the eye with Sydney's own obelisk. With a pair of binoculars, someone might have noticed that the pyramid on top of the tower was not actually solid. There were decorative holes in it, not unlike a vent cover in a home. What they couldn't see though was the hollow space inside running the length of the obelisk. The obelisk was actually a release pipe for the buildup of sewer gas beneath the park and streets. City officials assumed that if they could push the smelly gases up above people's heads, folks would never even notice them. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. All that stink hung around the park like an unseen fog of foul fragrance. Yes, the obelisk was a big whiff for Mayor Thornton, who soon became known as Stinky George, thanks to the malodorous mistake. Lucky for him, most people today have forgotten about the mayor of Fetid Town, but his obelisk still stands. And despite the fact that it doesn't stink anymore, it is still commonly known by its nauseating nickname, Thornton's Scent Bottle.
1: Hello, families! Get ready for a thrilling adventure with Culture Kids Podcast. Join us as we unlock wonders of the world, embarking on a journey through culture, traditions, and languages, all while having a blast with your whole family. We cover different topics, like different greetings around the world, and K-pop, Texas barbecue, and even Pokemon. Ignite curiosity, broaden horizons, and inspire empathy in your children with interviews from people all over the world, providing diverse perspectives that your whole family can learn from. Let Culture Kids Podcast be your passport to a global education where learning and fun go hand in hand. And that's Culture Kids Podcast wherever you get your podcast, Got it. See you there.
0: All right, it's perfect because for You Have 30 Seconds This Month, Branta's is going to tell us about something, someone really tall.
1: Hi, my name is Brant. I'm seven and a half years old and I live in Grove, Tennessee. Today I want to tell you about the tallest man in recorded history, Robert Wadlow. Robert was born in 1918 and lived in Alton, Illinois until he died in 1940. He had a health issue that caused him to grow taller and more quickly than most humans. By the time he was my age, he was taller than his dad. Sadly, Robert got an infection, and he died at only 22 years old. He was 8 feet 11 inches.
0: Nice work, Brandt. That was awesome. And Robert Wadlow is a super fascinating person. I enjoyed learning about him, and and thank you for sharing the other resources that your family shared and you have a common hometown too, right? That's awesome. If you have a, 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 you have a 30 seconds, all you need to do is send it in, make it a recording with a voice memo on an app or a phone, and send it to hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. All right, since we're talking about tall things called obelisks and Robert Wadlow's, I guess, I think it's only right that we talk about tall stuff for this month's quiz time. So let's get started. Question number one, the tallest known living tree has a name. What is its name? Where is it? And what kind of tree is it? Okay, yeah, I know. So that was three questions, but that's okay. It is a redwood tree on America's Pacific coast. That much is true. Maybe you got that right. Because they don't want anything to happen to it, it's kind of a secret as to where this tree exactly is located, but it's somewhere in Northern California and its name, Hyperion. It is 115.5 meters tall or 379 feet. Way to go, big tree. Okay, question number two. North Dakota was once home to the tallest structure on Earth. What was it? It was a television antenna. The KVLY-TV Mast was built in 1963 to broadcast television signals over great distances, which should be easy since it was 2,063 feet tall but actually in 2019, they took a little off the top and it is now only 1,987 feet tall. Even so, that is only less than 700 feet below the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. And even if the Burj Khalifa stole its thunder, the mast was the first human-made structure to be over 2,000 feet tall. So way to go, big North Dakota television mast. All right, question number three. In 2021, Wilfred Stilger led a team in Denmark to set a new world record in hype. Together, they built something amazing. The structure is over 5000 tons in weight and 69 feet tall, yet it probably didn't survive its first rainstorm. So what was it? These artists in Denmark created the tallest sandcastle in the world. They really outdid themselves too, because it's a full 10 feet taller than the previous world record holder. Way to go, big Dutch sandcastle. In 1848, after four decades of talking about it, people actually agreed to start construction of the Washington Monument. Unfortunately, the first action was in the exact wrong direction down, not up. This set the tone for the eventual obelisk. The tall tower honoring George Washington took years to start, and then took even longer to finish. On any grand structure, be it building, obelisk, or what have you, the cornerstone is a crucial part, and not just when it comes to construction. See, people like to make a big deal out of laying the cornerstone. Usually, this first block in the ground is celebrated with a big ceremony and lots of people. And the cornerstone of the Washington Monument was pretty big. In fact, it weighed over 42,000 pounds. And after arriving in Washington, D.C. from Baltimore by railroad, the hunk of marble was taken by cart, slowly, towards the final location, which is now known as the National Mall. But a bridge along the route stretching over a muddy canal wasn't up to the task of supporting such a supersized slab of stone. Oh, hey, where's the cornerstone? Where'd the bridge go? Well, uh, the bridge broke. It's all down there in the mud. Well, we better get the stone out. How are we going to do that? It's gigantic and it's stuck in the mud. It's going to be a mess. Listen, it's taken 40 years to get to this moment, and there is a big party planned in a couple of days. So we're going to get it out if the two of us have to pull it out ourselves. Listen, I like George Washington as much as the next guy, but that's impossible. Oh, have faith. Either way, once we're out, you know, I bet we'll be washing a ton of dirt off of ourselves, if you know what I mean. Is that a dad joke? More of a father of our country joke. Before long, a team of people from the Navy Yard were on hand to help pull the cornerstone out of the mud and back to the bank. Even the Marine Band musicians who were scheduled to play for the ceremony put down their instruments and helped with the heaving and the hoeing. By July 4th, the stone was out of the mud, clean, ready for installation and even had a little storage space carved out of it for a time capsule. The guest list for the day was epic. Over 20,000 people were on hand. The president, James K. Polk, was obviously there, but it was also a crossroads of people past and present. Eliza Hamilton, widow of Alexander Hamilton, she was there, as was former first lady Dolly Madison, But also in attendance was a young, relatively unknown congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. It's amazing to think of these worlds colliding in one place. The ceremony was elaborate, and it included a two-hour speech, which was given before the invention of microphones and speakers, so surely it was riveting. What did he say? I'm not sure. Something about washing a ton of dirt. But construction didn't move very fast after that. Money to pay for it was always hard to come by. Congress didn't want to cough up any cash. So, people in charge of building the monument had to raise funds any way that they could. One idea was to have states pay for a special stone which would be engraved in their honor. It was a show of patriotism, and a few sponsored stones started showing up. But, 2 years later, the stubby little structure was just a few feet off the ground. On July 4th of 1850, George Washington's adopted son presented a stone from the District of Columbia to President Zachary Taylor. Later that day, Zachary Taylor got sick, and within a few days, he became the second president to die in office. By the way, he died on my birthday, and he's buried in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, which I always found odd as a child. Slowly, the Washington Monument grew, but it still only resembled a sawed-off tree trunk when construction hit its biggest snag. At this point in America, there was a growing political group called the Know-Nothings. They were called this because they were supposed to say that they Know-Nothing when asked about their exclusive and honestly mean-spirited group. This is probably because they weren't doing good stuff. Most of them were angry about immigrants coming to America, in particular Catholics these nativists were afraid of foreign influence in America. Yet, it's worth pointing out that most of these people had immigrant parents or grandparents to thank for being in America anyway. Still, they vilified new immigrants, didn't want them in America, and even acted out in violence towards Irish and German Catholics. In 1854, the Pope, who was the head of the Catholic Church, decided to send a stone of his own for the monument. But when the Know-Nothings found out about this, They lost their collective minds. And in an angry mob, they stormed the Capitol and stole the stone. Some reports say they threw it in the Potomac River. It's never been found either way. But bigger problems came afterwards when these know-nothings took control of the group raising funds to continue building the Washington Monument. They wanted to make sure that it was built on their terms, but it soon became clear that they actually knew nothing about the rest of America. No one wanted to give him any money. Ultimately, the Know-Nothings failed to build the monument. And by the American Civil War in 1861, Washington's sad, unfinished monument looked like a broken-off chimney made of Baltimore marble in the middle of a field. Far from the height originally planned, and really more of an embarrassment to George Washington's memory than an honor. The Civil War took people's attention and all of the extra money, So the half-monument sat dormant while cows and pigs grazed the grass around it for another decade or so. After the war, people began to take an interest in the monument once again. And in 1880, finally, there was money and time. A new problem came up at this time. The quarry, which they had gotten all the original stone from, had closed. Closed many years before that, actually. There was no way to get any more, so they looked and found a suitable alternative. Marble from a different quarry. Hey, things are really coming along now. I I love the way it's looking. Really cool decision to use the two different colors of marble so it doesn't match. Doesn't match? What are you talking about? Well, just look. There in the middle, the stone clearly changes color. I can see the old stuff, and then up on top, the new stuff. Cool choice. Oh, that was not what I nor anyone else wanted. Ugh, maybe it'll get better with age and the two stones will look more alike as time goes on? Nope, I know a thing or two about marble. It's only going to get worse. (laughs) The Washington Monument is going to be two colors forevermore. Well, considering everything, I guess that seems fitting. By 1884, the construction was complete. In the end, it would reach just over 550 feet tall, making it the tallest building in the world. That is, until the Eiffel Tower in Paris came along four years later. But the monument wasn't just made of marble. There is a Pyramidian cap on the top, a sharp point that has a unique history of its own. People in charge wanted to do something very, very special for the tippity-top of the tallest structure in the world. Gentlemen, this monument is for George Washington, a very special man. Sure. Oh, yes. Here, here. Here, here. It has taken us almost a century to get the job done. And now we stand here, gazing at a terrific, though 2 colored, obelisk. Unlike anything else in the world. Yeah, obelisk! Yay! Yes, we are great, aren't we? I'll say. We are. And it is for that reason that I propose a special cap on top. The most special, most unique, most amazing cap. What, you may ask, shall we cap it with? Oh, I propose something beautiful, rare, strong, and incredibly valuable. Gold! Oh yes, gold would be perfect. No, no, you must think more creatively than that. Everyone uses gold. Ah, yes, silver. Silver! Understated, elegant, rare, and valuable. No, no, not silver. Silver! Well, if not gold and if not silver, then what? Yeah, what's it gonna be, Mister? Aluminum. <gasps> no, what? Aluminum. Yes, Aluminum. Yes. Aluminum. You, Aluminum. Aluminum. Yes, of course. Aluminum, or aluminium if you're not American. In 1884, no one knew how much of it there was in the world. Today, we know it is the third most common element on Earth, after oxygen and silicon. This makes it very cheap, actually but it's still pretty awesome, honestly. See, it does not occur as a metal, naturally. That takes a process that was initially very difficult, and for that reason, it was as valuable as silver. Yeah, that same thing from which you drink a soda or use to wrap up your peanut butter and jelly sandwich was once a scarce and valuable metal that captured people's attention. In fact, before its installation at the top of the monument, The 100-ounce aluminum pyramid was put on display at Tiffany's, a fancy store that sells fancy things in New York City. People flocked to Tiffany's not just to see it, but they were also invited to leap over the 9-inch tall aluminum point. That way, they could say that they jumped over the top of the Washington Monument. On December 6, 1884, 36 years of construction finally wrapped when the aluminum cap was put in place. It's long been surpassed as the tallest building, but it does remain the tallest obelisk in the world. Thank you for listening to episode 81. My name is Mick Sullivan and this has been the Past and the Curious. Who knew that obelisks could be so interesting? Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I sure had a good time putting it together. Um, I have some Patreon people to thank, and I am very grateful to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for your support. It means, it really does, it means a lot. It's kept this thing going for so long. Uh, So it's really great, thank you so much. Um, So Noah and Jesse, I understand that you and a grown-up named Helen uh, make use of this show on your car journeys, and that's awesome. I'm so glad to be along for the ride. I wish I could see the sights you're seeing because I bet you're seeing some pretty cool stuff. But just the same, Noah and Jesse, hello to you. I'm so glad that you're out there and I'm so glad you enjoy the show. And the same thing goes for Court, Leslie, Robin, and Violet, a family that is making their way through the back catalog in much the same way, using it for car journeys. And I just love that. I love it. I'm so glad that I can help also, Ben Strano, Ben Strano, Ben Strano, I think it is. Yes, or maybe you go by Sonic Fedora. I'm not sure, but I really appreciate your Patreon support. Thank you so much. And lastly, Jude McCarty in Seattle. I think I may have thanked you last month or should have instead of someone else. Anyway, I'm not totally sure. So if you're out there, Jude McCarty, hello to you and thank you very much for your support. And last but not least, I have a Patreon song for some brothers. Uh, I'm excited to share that with them. But before that, I just want to thank everyone again. If you want to help the show in any way that you can, uh, telling somebody about it, leaving a review, those are all really, really great things. And of course, if you'd like to get a copy of the book or request it from your local library, that would be so awesome. And leave a review for that too. It's really helpful. Thank you all very much. Here's a song for some brothers. Remy and Laszlo Hear me sing so low I don't know but they know a dog named Ronnie who's mouth everybody talk to you soon my name is mick sullivan and this has been the past and the curious
1: we've all been there you're standing in a museum staring at a painting and all you can think is i don't get it to me knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart?